Well, we haven't read it out loud for a couple weeks together, so let's start by doing that. We're going to read in unison, okay? Okay? okay. <laughs> Tough crowd, okay. Here we go. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, going through that list, some of you probably noticed what comes after love. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the important foundation and the, and the primacy of love in this whole relationship with God. But joy? Really? Second to love? I mean, is being happy really that deserving of being close on the list? Shouldn't something so frivolous as being happy have come at the end of the list? Shouldn't Paul have said, you know, and, and once you get all the rest of this stuff in place, if you're happy at the end, wonderful. You've been doubly blessed. But I want you to know that there is a much deeper connection between love and joy than what we oftentimes imagine. Listen to the words of the psalmist in chapter 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. See the connection? As God satisfies us with his love, we are joyful. Now, I believe joy is the natural outgrowth of loving God and being loved by God. And when we come to understand that the all-knowing, the all-powerful God of the universe loves us even when nobody else loves us, and that we have the capacity to reflect that love to a lost and dying world, joy happens. It is the natural byproduct. It, it, you can't help but be joyful. It's the unmistakable biblical result of God's love in us. Now, that said, don't don't underestimate the value of joy. It is far more than simply being happy. In the English language, happiness and joy appear as synonyms, but it's not that way in the Bible. The feelings that come from happiness and the feelings that come from joy may be similar, but we get to those feelings from an altogether different standpoint of view between the two. You see, the word happy or happiness finds the same, it comes from the same root word as happen or happening, thus the connection. When something good happens, we feel happy. You pass your driver's test. You purchase a new pair of shoes. Someone surprises you with a birthday party. You get a raise at work. All those are the kind of events that fill us with kind of a euphoric, happy feeling, and we feel good. And then you get your first speeding ticket, and your new shoes pinch your toes, and the party's over, and everybody leaves you to clean up the mess, and an unexpected expense comes up and gobbles up the raise, and then some, and suddenly the, the happy feelings go right out the door because what happened is no longer relevant. Can you be happy? Is there a lasting happiness? Well, if power brought lasting happiness, Joseph Stalin would have been giddy, but the man was paranoid. He had seven different bedrooms. He slept in a different one every night in no order. He had five different chauffeured limousines. They all left at the same time with black curtains because nobody knew in what car he was driving, so no one could assassinate him. He even had a person on his staff that did nothing but monitor his tea bags. Power 
but no happiness. And wealth can't bring happiness, or Huguette Clark would have been delirious with joy. Maybe you read about her. She died this past May at the age of 104. When she died, she left two sprawling mansions. In addition to that, a 42-room Fifth Avenue New York penthouse, a fabulous art collection, and a financial fortune, in, on top of all that, worth $400 million. But she hadn't even been to her mansions since the early 60s for 50 years. And she lived in a hospital room since the 1980s, even though she was perfectly healthy. See, wealth can't buy happiness. And fame and success doesn't lead to happiness, or John Lennon would have had a corner on the market, but he was miserable. His biographers describe him as a frightened man, unwilling to sleep with the lights off, afraid to touch anything because of its filth. Joy, on the other hand, is not dependent upon happenings in our lives. Genuine joy is the outgrowth of relationships. The joy that comes in marriage is a good illustration of that. Not everything that happens in a marriage is good. There are ups and downs. There are tough times to get through. But what I've learned through the years and what you've learned through the years as you watch marriages around you is that even through the disappointments and the heartaches and the tough times, two people who love each other grow closer and the joy actually increases. Yeah, even in the unhappy moments, the joy grows deeper. And of course, the greatest relationship of all is the most important relationship of all, and that's our relationship with our Heavenly Father. A relationship with God is to the soul what sunshine is to somebody who suffers with seasonal affective disorder. We call it sad. It's, it's that malady, that, that depression, that pall that comes over some folks when they are deprived of, of sunlight. It happens most often here in the Midwest in the wintertime when the skies are gray continually and the sun is so absent. Some people become severely depressed. And, and the remedy, the remedy is, is fairly simple, full spectrum light and lots of it. You see, sunlight is nature's antidepressant. And here's how it works. In your, uh, the, the, the LUX, L-U-X, is a measurement of light intensity. Your home, the lights in your home produce about 200 to 300 LUX per day. But a sunshine-filled day produces 50,000 to 100,000 LUX, which is why when we don't see the sun, we feel it. When it comes to joy, I think of what John wrote about the Father. John writes this, he said, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If you want lasting joy, stick close to the light. God is to the soul what sunshine is to the person suffering from seasonal affective disorder. Stick close to the light, and you'll know joy like you've never known it before. Now, all that said, God doesn't wave some light wand over us and make us irresistibly joyful. No, he gives us the capacity for joy, but sometimes we have to work through different things in our own life to partner with him to make it a reality. And, and that's what I want you to, to see here this morning, and that is that we need to develop joy internally, okay? We have to develop joy internally as God works with us. And the first thing I want you to see is that we need to change 
uh, our, our focus a little bit with regard to the desires of our life. We, we need to learn to connect the desire with the designer himself. Now, have you ever wondered why you are the way you are? I mean, why do you like certain things and you don't like other things? Why are, are there certain desires and passions and dreams that fill your life and, and you can't figure out why? I mean, I... You know, because I've told you this before, I've always liked old cars. I've always been fascinated by the lure of flying. I've always enjoyed woodworking and, and, and wood carving. And I don't know why. Nobody told me I was to be that. I've just been that way. When other kids were excited to see the ice cream truck come through town, I got excited when I saw an Edsel drive through town. Why I'm that way, I don't know, but I'm t I'm t that's the way I'm wired. Some of you are wired to, to love numbers. I mean, you are great with mathematics and you thrill to work with numbers. For some of you, music is a passion. Others of you find great joy in studying and creating works of art. Some of you work in medicine, not just because you want to help people, but because you are captivated and energized by what medicine can do and the new research and what it shows. Some of you lead because you're just wired to be a leader. You can't help but be a leader. It's who you are. Some of you are problem solvers and you live to find the right solution and when it all comes together, you just feel good. You're satisfied. Why are you that way? It's because it's the way you are wired. And the way we are wired, our desires and our dreams drive us. In this role of grandfather, I am being reintroduced to certain things, and as Addison grows, I'm learning new things all over again, being reintroduced to Sesame Street, and uh, that has been a fun reintroduction. I'd forgotten how clever and how classy Sesame Street could be. But of what I'm trying to describe here, there is one character in Sesame Street that, that catches it better than any other. It's Cookie Monster. You know, the blue, fuzzy guy who dreams thinks, longs for, desires, and eats cookies. He is, a, this is deep theology. Hang on with me here, folks. All right, well, we're do, going through this. There is one driving passion in his life, and it's cookies. Nothing but cookies. Brother Lawrence, who authored the book, The Practice of the Presence of God, wrote, let us often remember, dear friend, that our sole occupation in life is to please God. Or to put it another way, he should be our chief desire. Or to put it another way, we need to love God as much as Cookie Monster loves cookies. That one single passion. Now too often we misunderstand what all this means. We get it stuck in our heads that okay, if, if I'm going to love God with all of my heart and passion, then that means I have to get rid of everything else that I love doing. All the dreams and the desires and the longings. What makes me me? And, and, and folks, I'm here to tell you, that's distorted spirituality. You don't find that anywhere in the scriptures, but a lot of religions around the world teach that very thing. Buddhism, perhaps more than any other, teaches that the renunciation of all human desire is vital to discover life at its pinnacle. Now, if you ask me, the statues I've seen of Buddha seem like he could give Cookie Monster a run for his money, so I'm not sure that translates well, but I know Christians who believe the same thing, that if I'm going to be God's person, then I've got to get rid of all of these other desires. And when that happens, one of two things takes place. Either people say, I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ because I don't want to give up who I am. 
And so their spirit is, is, has a void in it because they are missing the Savior. Or some people give up everything thinking that's what Christ demands and then they're resentful of it. And they're negative, bitter Christians because they've never lived out what they really wanted to be. So I've got a question for you this morning. Who made you the way you are? Who gave you the desires that you have? Aren't you created by God, unique, unlike anybody else that has ever lived, that God made you for a purpose and, and wants to use you for a purpose? And, and have you ever thought about the fact that God is pleased when he sees you enjoying life as he created you to enjoy it? That as any father is pleased with a child who is joyful in life, so our Heavenly Father is thrilled when we live life to the fullest with the passions and the desires that he created us with. God made you unique for a purpose. Be who you are and use who you are to serve God and reflect God in your life and in this world. John Ortberg wrote this. He said, desire itself is an invitation to seek God's presence. So I hope you will find joy in who God created you to be you got to connect the desire with the designer. And when you know that you can do both, it gets rid of the conflict and increases your joy. Now here's something else you need to do, and that is you need to get rid of the stink. You need to get rid of the stink. In the last several months, Smith Road has been death row for skunks. If you live on the east side of town, you know, from from the church on over somewhere, and you travel Smith Road as, at, at all, you will know that a, almost a week hardly goes by, but what, two or three dead skunks are found on the road, and it's awful. In, in, if you've got your windows open in the cool of the evening, you can't leave them open very often when a skunk gets hit on the road. There have been times when we've had the windows open at night and, and a skunk gets killed and, and the smell will wake me up in the night. It's awful. I would pay a good buzzard to clean up the stuff. <laughs> but they're too discriminating. Not even the vultures will pick up the roadkill from the skunks. Here's what I've learned. You never get rid of the smell unless you get rid of the carcass. Some of you are still holding on to the remains of the past. Lousy attitudes, horrible grudges, resentments, hurts, and yes, sins that were supposed to die, that did die when you were crucified with Christ. I know, they're hard to let go of. We, we tend to want to keep them around us like, like they're old friends, but I'm here to tell you, they're dying, they're dead, they're rotting carcasses, and you'll never get rid of the stink in your life until you get rid of the past. And you will never know joy until you can get rid of the stink, because the two cannot inhabit the same life. You're surrounded by decay, so get rid of the past and get rid of the stink. Then I want you to see, once you get rid of the stink, you've got to retrain the brain. How you think has a lot to do with the joy you experience. You can't just get rid of the stink. You've got to replace that void in your life with something good. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. You get the picture here? You know, what, what's driving your life here is how your mind thinks. And so, 
from the decay of the world into the spirit-filled life, you've got to retrain your brain and fill your mind with alternatives. Now, I like what Paul writes to the church at Philippi. In, in Philippians chapter 4, this is what we read. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Wow! When you start thinking on these things, joy comes. Your mind is an incredible gift. Before you were born, your body produced about 200 billion neurons to give you the power to think and react. Research in, in recent years has discovered that mental exercise makes a difference. Take a tennis player, for example. She wants to work on her backhand. And so working on the court on the backhand is important, but research says that if the tennis player will replay the exercises of a good backhand in her mind over and over and over, if she will focus that in her mind when she's not on the court, It'll make a difference the next time she steps onto the court and practices, that your brain can make that kind of a difference. We now know that the brain is amazingly changeable, even into adulthood. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Neurons that are wired together fire together. So when you practice hope and love or joy, your mind is actually literally rewiring your brain to focus in that direction. God created you in his image and gave you the capacity to, to have directed mental force or focus. I mean, you can, you can pull all of the power of your brain together and focus it in on a specific task, and that's what helps to rewire it. Let me give you an example. When I drop a contact lens, either I don't get it in right or I'm rubbing my eye and I pop it out, and it falls onto the carpeted floor. Once I kneel down carefully, and begin to look, I want you to know nothing, I don't see anything else. I couldn't tell you what pattern's in the carpet. I couldn't even tell you what color's in the carpet. I don't see pieces of lint or a bug crawling along the floor. I've locked out everything else. All I'm looking for is a little tiny green-tinted lens, and all of my brain is focused on that. The rest of the neurons aren't fighting, firing because they're focused on that purpose. Now, that's what Paul is describing for us here in Philippians chapter 4. It's not just pleasant platitudes. He's actually giving us the way to replace the void that the stink left behind. He says, think about what is true and pure and honorable and right and admirable, and it's to put that intense, directed mental focus right there, and it will rewire your brain. You see, Paul was talking about developing the right kind of attitude. And some of us in this room really need work on our attitudes. If somebody were to ask you today, could, could you answer, are, do you live with a joyful attitude? Do you tend to be more positive or negative with your attitude? How are you attitudinally? Because some people can go through the very same experience and, and one comes out joyful and the other one comes out a lot less than joyful. What makes the difference? It's your mental focus. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read from the diary of a, of a dog and a diary of the cat. Okay, all right, here's, here's an excerpt from the diary of a dog. Nine o'clock, a car ride, my favorite thing. 
10.30, got rubbed and petted, my favorite thing. 12 o'clock, lunch, my favorite thing. 3 o'clock, wagged my tail, my favorite thing. 5 o'clock, milk bones, my favorite thing. 7 o'clock, got to play ball, my favorite thing. 8 o'clock, wow, watch TV with people, my favorite thing. Here's an excerpt from a cat's diary. Day 983 of my captivity. <laughs> my captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangly objects. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. That, folks, is why I am not a cat person. Now, some of you think, that's not the way my cat is. I understand. I know, I know. This is just an illustration. Don't get hung up on it. You just love your cat. And see if your cat loves you back, all right? <laughs> this afternoon, I want you to go home, and I want you to start working on memorizing Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, and then practicing it over and over and over again, learning how to focus in on true, honorable, pure, admirable, so that you can replace the void when you got rid of the stinking carcass. And then I want you to know, as surprising as it may seem, that joy also comes when we endure through suffering. We seldom consider that suffering is a path to joy, but just keep, in, keep this in mind. Fruit grows best in the valleys, not on the mountaintops. Believe it or not, difficult situations and difficult people may strengthen your joy, like weights which provide resistance to our muscles, but the more we move them, the stronger our muscles become, or like a sustained increased heart rate leads to good cardiovascular health, so suffering through difficult circumstances and with difficult people can be beneficial to your joy, but a lot of it depends on your attitude. The prophet Elijah had just come down off of the top of the mountain, Mount Carmel, where he'd had this phenomenal event and experience where God demonstrated without any shadow of a doubt to the whole nation of Israel that there was no God in this world or this universe but him. It was a tremendous victory. The false prophets and the idol worship prophets were put to death, and Elijah comes down off of the mountaintop joyful. Until one nasty old queen, Jezebel, shook her bony finger in his face and she says, may the gods treat me, be it ever so severely, if I don't make you like one of these dead prophets tomorrow. And suddenly the joy just drained out of Elijah and from the mountaintop he runs into this desert valley, away from everything. And when God finally reveals himself to him in the desert. Elijah is just downcast. And, 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 and this is what he's feeling. He's feeling this sense of worthlessness. He says, Lord, I am no better than my ancestors. I, I'm, I'm just worthless now. There was a helpless feeling. He, he ran away. He didn't know where else to go. He, he, there was this hopeless helplessness if he stayed, and so he just runs into the desert with no place in mind as a destination. He felt isolated. He said, God, I'm the, I'm the only one you've got left. Nobody else is faithful but me. He was unable to cope. He said, I've had enough. Had it up to here. And then he was resigned to defeat. He actually prayed, Lord, take my life. I'm done here. Just take me home. 
Now, God didn't beat him up, and God didn't give up on him either. God, when he came to Elijah, made him get some sleep, then made him eat, gave him some physical refreshment. Then he reassured him that he wasn't alone. He said, there are 7,000 who are still in Israel that are faithful to me. And then God promised, he says, I'll go with you wherever you go, Elijah. And then God gave him a new mission and a new job. And he says, here's what I want you to do. This gives your life purpose and meaning. And then God did the most tremendous thing. God took him up onto another mountaintop, and in the cleft of a rock, he, he tucked Elijah in there, and he says, now, brace yourself, I'm going to pass by, and God passed by, protecting him with his hand, and Elijah got a glimpse of the glory of God. Wonder how many lux that was. And when he came down off of that mountaintop, he was a changed man. I'm here to tell you that if you will stick close to God in the tough times and with the tough people, you'll come out on the other side with a deeper joy. Elijah thought the problem was Jezebel. It wasn't Jezebel. In his suffering, he had lost sight of the light of the world. So stay focused on the Lord. He's not just a victor of the mountaintops. He is the fruit produce, producer of the valleys. When you're suffering with difficult people, ask God how you can grow through that instead of wither because of it. No wonder the psalmist wrote, weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Well, it's not just enough to develop joy internally. You've got to demonstrate it externally. Joyful people are, by nature, encouragers. I love to be around joyful people because I always feel so much better when I am now, you can fixate on the negative if you want to, but that won't help you help anyone else. And nobody will ever see the joy you have in Christ if you're always looking on the bleak side of things. Actor Alan Alda, who played Dr. Hawkeye Pierce on MASH, his most famous role, once said, he said, I can tell you as a non-physician, don't ever let your head bone be disconnected from your heart bone. Now, that's not physiologically correct, but boy, that's good emotionally and spiritually. When your head and your heart work in tandem together, you can make a difference in the lives of people by encouraging them with the joy you have in Jesus Christ. It has been said, if you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. But if you want happiness for a lifetime, help someone else. Our lives are most fulfilled when we invest in God and we invest in others. When our head and our heart work together and we aren't focused on ourselves, but we're loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're loving our neighbor as ourselves. When God and others dominate our mind and our thinking and our emotions, we will find joy in living. Long before football, there was a bowl game in Judea many centuries ago. Two major players were involved. One was Pontius Pilate and the other was Jesus Christ. Pilate called for a bowl so he could wash his hands of this whole ordeal with Jesus. The night before, Jesus had called for a bowl so that he could wash the disciples' feet. One was an act of irresponsible power. The other was an act of irresistible compassion. 
One acted on his own authority, the other was doing the will of his Father. One had no lasting joy, the other was the giver of eternal joy. One lost and one was victorious. What bowl are you using to serve with? Eusebius, the historian, tells us that after that time and that encounter with Jesus, Pontius Pilate's life just spiraled out of control. Even during the trial, Pilate's wife had had a dream that he should do, have nothing to do with this righteous man, Jesus. But he persisted, made the lousy choice. In 36 AD, he was recalled to Rome and then exiled from Rome because of some of the stupid decisions that he had made. And it was while he was in exile that Pontius Pilate killed himself committed suicide. He lost. There he was in the presence of the eternal joy giver and he didn't see it. But Jesus was victorious despite all that lay ahead of him. Which is why even though you've heard it once already today, I want you to hear it again. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy that we would have the chance to be his through his death, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you're going to live it like Pontius Pilate, or you're going to live it like Jesus Christ? Only one can give you victory. Only one can give you joy. And may that joy be evident internally and externally as you know the joy giver himself. How does your garden grow? Do you know the one and only who can fill you with joy this morning? While we stand and while we sing, you come to Jesus.